Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is true and it is for us. And so you may be glorified and you may be honored that we read it and we study it. May we learn from this story here today. May we see your faithfulness all throughout this story. And may we worship you more as we engage with it. In your son's name, amen. It is my uh, honor to preach today as Dave is on sabbatical. As the youth pastor, it's a great joy. This time of year is always fun. It was about two years ago that I took this position and have been delighted to do it. Uh, This time of year is always fun. It's also mine and Sarah's anniversary today, so it's just a fun time of year for us. So um, it is a delight to open the word before summer gets very busy. You got about uh, uh, 43 youth heading out to summer camp in the next week, week and a half to various camps. So be praying for them. Be praying for the leaders. Be praying for me. I'm staying for both. Uh, it's going to be a long couple weeks. But it is my joy to unpack the word of God with you here today. As I often tell the youth when we are going through different stories or different texts in the Bible or just in conversation, the story of redemption can be found anywhere in the word of God. It can't. Now, we may have to go outside of one singular verse, find the context, look a little deeper, find the bigger picture of it. But the story of Jesus is throughout the entire Bible. And this story is no different. I I hope to show you today where it exists. I hope to show you today where we can see the story of Jesus. We as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we look at a story like this. And for those who are visiting, this is not just some random chapter out of context, like why are you teaching this part of Joseph's life and not before or after? We're preaching through the book of Genesis and we are seeing themes spelled out, played out, and we're seeing these things pop up all throughout. So what we are gonna look at today are three very particular things. And I wanted to organize it in such a way that if you are in, who's a note taker? I'm a youth pastor, there will be interaction. Who's a note taker? Okay, we have some note takers. I hope to give you very clear spelled out points so that you may look at this story, this part of the story, because I believe what we're looking at is almost a crossroads of several points. And it's all of a sudden, it's like the life of Joseph is being crossed here and something is happening, something unique. And so I want to give you some stuff that you can jot down. You can come back. You can remember later this week. You can remember later over the summer. So what we are going to look at is we're going to look at three particular things. And within each one of these three points, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at there's a narrative. There's a story being told. We just read Genesis is a narrative. We're going to point out, hey, here's kind of one of the themes of this story. And I'm going to give you a phrase. You can jot it down. Then what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a second thing within that point, and that's gonna be what's the biblical truth? There's this narrative here, but there's a truth woven through it that we've seen before in scripture and we've seen after in scripture, and it is a constant biblical truth. And then I'm gonna have you do something that I ask the youth regularly to do, and that is some form of an application. Why does this matter? What do you mean? How do we play that out? Sometimes I think we look at biblical truth And we go, that's good, that's solid. But we need to pause and we need to say, okay, if that's biblical truth and the word of God is for me as a child, as a disciple of God, then what does that look like in my life? 
How do I unpack that in my own life? And we're gonna look at some very specific application ways that we can do that. So on the onset, this story has almost this idea of this hearkening back, so it were. Consider for a moment, the last three chapters has covered probably 15 plus years of Joseph's life. It all depends on how long this famine has been going on. And there has been this consistency throughout all of it of the Lord is up to something. He is this faithful fulfiller. He is doing something. But what is unique in this story is we get this crossroads. The Lord hasn't forgotten Jacob. We've been looking at Joseph for the last three chapters and it's been the life of Joseph. All of a sudden, we're going back. For the first time, we're going back and we're looking at Jacob. We're looking at this part of the story and what we get from it are a few key interesting things. So I'm gonna read again from Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down there, buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke, spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come, you have come, sorry, lost my spot. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. What we are going to look at here is our very first point. There is a fulfillment of God's promises happening. Now, there's three particular fulfillments that I want us to look at. Um, we see that there is first and foremost a fulfillment of the famine. Did he not promise that there would be a famine? Right? He said there would be a famine. This is a story of God showing us his plans to fulfill his promises. One of famine, one of bowing before Joseph, and one that we're going to look at that harkens back all the way to Abraham and a promise made to him about what would happen to his people. Now, the Lord is in the fulfilling. It's interesting, we have two sets of dreams that have happened that are being, beginning to be fulfilled in this process. First of all, this famine was massive. What does it mean that the whole world came to Egypt that we looked at? I think we can draw that this is speaking of the grand nature of this famine. It had reached all the way to Canaan, after all. It was so far spread that the known world knew that Egypt had grain and they didn't. That's all that mattered. They, Jacob's looking at this and he's like, so we do not die. Go get grain. This is a significant famine. This is the first fulfillment. Isn't this what the Lord had promised would happen? Consider last week when Joseph told Pharaoh that because he dreamed this dream in two different ways, what was the assurance? This is a sure thing. This will happen. The Lord has confirmed it. It's going to happen. Now, this is really awesome because God means what he says, and he says what he means. And in this case, he is proving to this pagan nation that believes in a false pagan God king that his words are true. 
This famine is no joke, just as was promised. And God has been proving to this pagan nation that his word is true. His word is true. So this being a story of God showing us his plans to fulfill his promises, how else does he do it? Well, he does it in the brothers bowing. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the story of Joseph or the story of Genesis, I'm sorry, you've missed 41 chapters of incredible context here. That is gonna be hard, but we will go back briefly. He had two sets of dreams. And in both of these sets of dreams in chapter 37, they both have essentially the exact same meaning. And it is that one day, this symbolism pointed to, his brothers and his family would come and bow before him. Now, if you are a younger sibling, and you go tell your older siblings that one day they are going to bow before you, you're probably gonna get socked in the nose or you're gonna get wrestled or there's gonna be a fight. Now, there were 12 of them. My dad grew up in a home with nine boys and I hear the stories of what that was like. 12 is significant. There was probably some angst, shall we say, in that moment. And yet, here we are, a fulfillment. Now, it's interesting last week. Remember what Joseph said to Pharaoh? Because you dream this dream twice, it is a sure thing that will happen. How many times did Joseph dream it? Interaction, I'm a youth pastor. How many, twice, Daniel, thank you. Twice. I wonder if that same promise stands true. But yet Joseph has sat here for 15 plus years without this dream being fulfilled. But isn't that kind of like the life of Joseph? What we've seen happen in his life is constantly waiting. Anyways, we'll get to that, don't worry. So, we have one more fulfillment that is happening here as well. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 15, 16. Now this is harkening back several chapters. I don't even know when we did Genesis 15, it was a while ago. But there was something that was promised to Abraham. See, there's a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's this promise of this great fulfillment that will happen, that was promised all the way back at Adam and Eve when they sinned, but it was going to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there was a fulfillment. But one of the things that was said in chapter 15, as they were given this promised land, the Lord told Abraham, but you're gonna leave this place for a while. And four generations later, they'll come back because the sins of the Amorites are not complete. Now that's an interesting thing to see happen. The Lord has a plan for his people to be in his place and his joyous presence. That's been a theme we've been going over. And none of this has ended, but this is the beginning of what is necessary to fulfill the promises of the promises of God that the Amorites' sin would increase, but that he would use the Israelites to bring about his executed will of punishment many years later. We, we have to camp here for a minute. I mean, what a patient and long-suffering God these are people who are sinful and he says, I'm going to give them time to repent. I'm going to give them. Now he knows what's going to happen, but he gives it to them. He gives them 400 plus years to turn from their sinful ways. They do not fear the Lord when it comes to this point. And in Leviticus 18, when they finally return to the promised land, we read, I mean, these are the most abhorrent sins and sexual sins you will read in the entire Bible, and that's what these people turn to. It's almost as if in a lack of fearing the Lord, the sin that runs rampant is very vile. It's almost like 
We need the Lord to free us from our sin. Hmm, that's interesting. Let's keep going. We'll see where that played out. But a reminder, this is a story of God showing us his plans to fulfill his promises. So what is the biblical truth? We look at it, it's kind of there, it's pretty obvious, but God is the God of fulfillment. He is. He fulfills. Consider all the ways we've seen him fulfill his promises to his people just in this book, 41 chapters, and we have seen it time and time and time again. God is the one who fulfills. Consider Joseph, just Joseph's life a few chapters ago. Did God forget Joseph in prison? Interaction, I'm a youth pastor. No, categorically no. He did not forget Joseph when he was in prison. My son Derek and I were talking last week after the sermon and he said, it's really interesting. And I'm gonna kind of summarize what he said, but it's almost like in the life of Joseph, there's this like two steps forward and then one step back. And then two steps forward and one step back. It's like, oh man, I'm sold into slavery but that's okay, I became the master of the house. Oh wait, now I'm put back in prison. That's okay, I became the master of the prison. Oh wait, I'm here for two years. Oh, okay, now I'm placed in to become the second most powerful person in the entire known world. Okay, God is up to something. Joseph, throughout all of this, God has not forgotten him. God has a plan for the fulfillment of all of his promises. I'm gonna pause there for a a minute and say that again. God has a plan for the fulfillment of all of his promises. What are the promises you know? He has a plan to fulfill those. He has a plan to fulfill these dreams, fulfilling the promises he has made, fulfilling his plans and purposes precisely the way he means to. He knows what he is going to do to fulfill exactly what he wants to do. Don't we see that throughout the Bible, all through the prophets? He tells the nation of Israel what will happen to them because of them if they continue to sin and what happens to them. It happens, he fulfills it, it comes about. Or in the New Testament, when Jesus promises us in countless ways, promises that we cling to as a deep hope, promises to never leave us, promises that no one will be able to snatch us out of his hand, promises to be our redeemer. Is not the story of Jesus and the work done on the cross to free us from our bondage and death to our sinful state, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that he made all the way back at the beginning of Genesis to provide for us someone who would crush Satan and defeat this horrible problem of sin. The story of Jesus is a fulfillment that God has set in place and he has said, I will do it. So how do we apply this truth? What's the application? Why does this matter? What are you gonna do with this? What are the promises of God to us that he has promised to fulfill? Truths that transcend our dreams and our desires. I want you to use the word of God to guide you with the truth found within it, applying it to grow in your faith. That's one of the reasons we have this book. This is the word of God. There are promises within this that are for you, brother and sister in Christ. Open it. Read it, look at the promises that God has given to us and understand that they are for us. I am asking that we look at the fulfillment of God's promises through his word to answer, find the answers to those prayers, those things that you have been praying about and waiting, those seemingly impossible prayer requests that you've been asking for for years or decades to be fulfilled. 
his promises to provide a way out of temptation. Guys, that is a promise. He has promised that these are things he will do. The promise to never leave us or forsake us, that is a promise. I know that there are times where you may feel like he has abandoned you, but the word of God says that is not so. That is not what he does. What is the hardship before you? The heartache that won't stop. The lies that keep being believed. The sin that keeps being turned to. Use the word of God to guide you with the truth found within it. Apply it to grow in your faith. What does this look like though? It means reading the Bible, following it. It means not just reading it, it means agreeing with it. The statistics are absolutely staggering how many people who would call themselves Christians, who would check it on a mark on a survey and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They do not look to the word of God as the authority to their life in either confession or lived experience. What I'm talking about here is having basically a biblical worldview. Someone who looks at the Bible and says, I see what the Bible says. And no matter what situation I am facing, I look at it through the lens of the truth of the word of God. The Bible says something, I obey. The Bible says go left, I go left. The Bible says obey, I obey. The Bible says forgive, I don't want to, but I'll forgive. When it says honor God, we honor God. Children, when it says honor your mother and father, you honor them. When it tells us all that we are to do, we should do without grumbling or complaining. We should do that to the glory of God, even if we feel that we might stand alone in our obedience to God. We are called to do it. This is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. If they are all, the, all the fulfillment of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, then there is no surer, steady anchor to hold on to than the words of God. Use the word of God to guide you. So truth from the Bible gives us guidance. There's a fulfillment of God's promises. One of the things that the Bible talks about that we see throughout here is, uh, is this expression of fear in this story. So in a sense, fear is a natural way as humans we make decisions. How many of you have ever made a decision based on fear? Raise my legs as well. We, we make decisions based on fear. Kids, this happens all the time. Middle of the night, a thunderstorm happens. What's your decision? Parents, what's their decision? <laughs> they come to you. Sometimes they don't even know it. Instinctively, they run into your room. Okay, what's going on? And there's a storm. Or maybe you're watching a scary movie and all of a sudden something happens. Somebody jumps out, blah, and you're like, there's things we, fearful decisions, responses that we have that rise up. But what we're gonna look at here is a decision based on fear, or is it a decision based in trusting God? What does that look like? See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all made decisions based on fear. We've seen that in the book of Genesis, and it's riddled throughout in a lot of different ways. And yet in this passage, we have an incredible moment where we see a decision based on the circumstantial fear compared to a decision based on a fear of the Lord. It's in there, in the text. So these two different responses. In, in Genesis 42, one through five, as we read, Jacob is fearful. Did you see it? He doesn't want to send Benjamin down to Egypt. Why? Because he's afraid. Jacob is afraid. You see, in his mind, his children from Rachel, once again, big context, hard to go back to, quick reminder, his children from Rachel are the real children that, in his mind. 
And if he assumes that Joseph is dead, who's the heir of the promise? Interaction, I'm a youth pastor, you have to. Benjamin, Benjamin is the one who's the heir and he's fearful that harm would come to him. Now we know that what fear looks like, we can relate in this moment. And yet what Jacob fails to look at in the face of the immediate fear is the promises and the fulfilled promises of God. Has not God promised that he would be the father of a great nation? Even renaming him to Israel is a sign of a renewed covenant. But here's a man who in the moment is living in fear. Here's our main statement from this part of the narrative. Fear in the absence of remembering God and his promises leads to fearful decisions. We'll see this at the end of the chapter as well when we get to the brothers and their fearful response with all the money in the sack and no, no, what are we supposed to do? But spoiler alert, guess what? Brothers return, they inform Jacob, hey, like we gotta take Jacob back. Implication at the end of that chapter is wasn't, we're gonna wait around for the grain to run out and go again. It was like, dad, we gotta go. This is a turnaround trip. Give us Benjamin, we need to get out of here. And his response is one of fear. He says in verse 38, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. He's afraid that his line will end, that his family will be done for, they will be undone. There's no one left in his mind. Brothers and sisters, do not allow circumstantial fear to guide your decisions alone. Fear in the absence of remembering God and his promises will lead to a fearful decision. And yet now juxtapose this, compare it, contrast it with the remembrance of the Lord and the decision-making and the, what brings about fear and a right fear that we'll see next. You see, biblical narrative is, is unique. We gotta unpack this a little bit. The author doesn't give us all the feelings and emotions. He doesn't emote with us about Joseph's condition all the time, but we do see some of it here. And it's rather interesting. Here's Joseph after getting into the rhythms of life He's got a wife, a kid, a solid job, probably a house with a little white picket fence, a yippy dog. Eh, it's Egypt. He probably has a cat. And it's probably what happens. And in, fact, and in fact, it's interesting that even in the naming of one of his kids that was mentioned last week in chapter 41, verse 51, Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. There's a sign that he believes his past is gone. It's a new chapter. He's moved on. And lo and behold, one day, put yourself in his shoes. He's standing there, next, sending the next caravan, looking for food. And who does it happen to be? It happens to be his brothers. I can imagine blinking, rubbing his eyes, wondering what in the world is going on. I mean, probably thinking, I know I'm grown. I look a little different. They look a little different. Is this who I think it is? And so he asks them, who are you? Where do you come from? He's confirming their story and lo and behold, it is them. And he all of a sudden remembers that he had those dreams all those years ago. And I can imagine that Joseph was in turmoil. Actually, we see that in verse 24 and then again later, multiple times, Joseph is found weeping, it says. But what we get from this passage is a behavior of Joseph that I think shows us some character development. I don't believe Joseph, Joseph had forgotten God. In fact, we see that in the naming of his other son, Ephraim, in verse 52 of chapter 41, says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Who has made him fruitful? God. He has not forgotten God. And all these signs and the naming of his children is a remembrance of God and his promises. Joseph, despite not being where he thinks is God's place, is exactly where God wants him and is being God's people exactly where he has him. And he is now enjoying his presence precisely where God wants him to be. There's a contentment with where God has him. What we see is that he is going to test the brothers. Now, many people believe that this test had very different reasons. You read a different commentary and everybody has their kind of opinion on this. So what I look to when I see it, and the one that stands out the most to me is, why does he change his mind? Did you see it in the text? He originally says, he originally says like, I'm gonna keep all of you and I'm gonna send one. But then he arrests them for three days and then he sends all of them but keeps one. He flip-flopped. What happened there? And I think this is one of, the most imp- one of the most interesting thing. It's almost like he can't make up his mind about how to treat them. And what happens is he gets this moment where there's this juxtaposition where, he re- where we can see that fear in the absence of God is happening and he responds differently, which leads to our biblical truth, which is in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for interaction. I'm a youth pastor, you have to talk back to me. I fear God. What a different response. Joseph makes his very hard decision based on one solid overarching truth that he has seen faithfully played out time and time and time again. God has a plan, God is with him, and he fears God. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. Joseph makes his decision, a very hard decision, one where we might say he would be very justified to exact the punishment that he wanted to. He's like the second most powerful person in the entire world at this point. He could kind of do whatever he wanted. But God is at work in Joseph despite the brother's sinful actions towards him. But isn't that how we've seen it play out? How many times do we see God working in Genesis to accomplish his plan despite the individual character's failures? And here we have Jacob's fear and smack dab in the middle of this is the fear of God rising to the top. Do you fear God? Do you fear God enough to let it affect your actions? Consider Joseph, he fears God. Has God done anything to make Joseph think that he would need to be fearful in a trembling way? Sometimes we misunderstand that. We think it's this idea of like, well, Joseph's been punished and he's been, he's been crushed by God. Actually, when we see Joseph, he, it's just this horrible condition and state that's come upon him. But what is really unique is that we see a mighty God who is powerful enough to intertwine all these flows together. And I think what's happening here is based on all of that, he is blown away. He is connecting the dots. I believe based on all this, the naming of his kids, his fear of the Lord, that Joseph sees the goodness of God's plan. And it's finally at play. And it is an utter awe of the power to do such a thing. Dreams, slavery, prison, famine, all of it, these horrible things. And it comes to this moment and he's like, I can't believe you orchestrated that. I can't believe what you just accomplished. And I believe the fear that he's expressing is like, I can't believe God is so powerful that he can do exactly what he's going to accomplish. And I had no clue. 
I couldn't even imagine to play it out that way. I don't think he spent those days pondering all that had happened and he couldn't help but apply knowledge into wisdom and it rooted and dwelled up into this, this is an amazing God that we serve. Do you live with the right fear of God? What does this look like? How do you apply the fear of the Lord? That is the question for your application. How do we do this? Consider the might and majesty, both glorious and terrifying as it is to consider that who he is and all that he knows and all that he is and all of our sins and all of our imperfections, he's not fooled. He knows our faults. He knows our flaws. And yet in his goodness, right next to his justice, he looks upon us and he says, that child, they're mine. Does that move you? He looks at us and says, I know my children. I have looked upon them. I have redeemed them by my hand and my perfect will. He knows our deeds and our actions that we might think to fear God out of fright. And make no mistake, there is a place where unrepentant sin, a wolf in sheep's clothing, where there is a fear that should dwell upon us if we are in those places. But this is a place where a fear of the Lord This is a place where fear in the Lord, it looks different. What I'm talking about is an application of all that we see God do and know, and it brings us to our knees, that someone so powerful and majestic and holy can look upon us in our sin and say, I choose to redeem you. You are mine, holy, chosen, and beloved. We get an identity in Christ, and we look at that and we go, how can he do that? Why would he do that? And it moves us. Oh, that we would be a people who rightly look upon the glory of the Lord and let it lead to a right fearing of him. And we get to our last point in closing, his faithfulness. So in light of all that we have seen, we get to see something rise above it all. Isn't this how God works? We've seen countless times the faithfulness of God. He is faithful in this passage. Some of it, We won't fully see until we get further down the story in the life of Joseph. So come back next week and the week after that. Hear from Pastor Daniel and from Bruce Bruce Power, our elder. Um, Faithfulness to the Lord. He is faithful in this passage. And we are going to see it. So there's this narrative still happening here. Here's the narrative part of the story. It's a narrative that guides our whole study of this book. It's a phrase that we've heard in various forms from various preachers who have stood up here. God is fulfilling his promises to his people to be his place, to be in his place, to enjoy his presence. Think about it. He says, let's send the heir apparent down to Egypt. Joseph's the oldest of the favored wife. Let's send him down to Egypt, a prisoner. Oh, and, and, and then, and then uh, we're gonna do something else. Um, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna change up what's happening here. We're going to send the nation of Israel back out of the promised land also that we can have them grow into a powerful nation. Also, the sin of the Amorites can grow so that my justice is is righteous and is perfect. Oh yeah, and then Joseph, he's gonna be tossed around all over the place. And if you're in the moment, you're going, this is really confusing. But all of a sudden, we step back by keeping all of his promises and his faithfulness. This is all being done so that God can be glorified because where does it lead? It leads to a redeemer. Who's the redeemer? Jesus Christ. What is the line he comes through? He comes through the children of Israel. He comes specifically through this family. This was all a part of his plan. And you can't write a better story than this. He sends Joseph to Egypt, provides dreams, fulfillment, allows for Joseph to provide food, monetary blessing for his people. And that's how God works. 
isn't it? Sometimes if we take the narrative of our, our own life and think about some immediate trial, maybe there's something in your life right now that you're thinking about, a hardship, a fear. It feels like, what's going on here, God? I have no idea what is going on in this moment. This doesn't make any sense. But when we step back and we look and we see the key truth, God is fulfilling his promises to his people to be in his presence, to enjoy, to be in his place, to enjoy his presence. And he's doing that at all time, right in the center of his will. It is not outside of his plan to do so. The momentary trial can be hard. Joseph is proof of that. As Dave reminded us in chapter 39, God is with us. And in Deuteronomy 31, 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. These are promises of God, of his faithfulness. So where does this leave us with the biblical truth? He's the faithful one. He is the faithful one. Has Adam been the perfect faithful one? Hey, you're learning. (laughs) No. (laughs) Has Cain, Abel, or Seth, were they the faithful ones? No. Has Noah been the perfect faithful one? No, he has failed as well. But what about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob? Have they been the faithful ones, perfect faithful ones? No, they have not. Who has been the perfect faithful one and has always been the perfect faithful one? It is God Almighty who is the perfect faithful one. Paul puts it this way as an application for our life in Philippians 1, 6, one of my absolute favorite verses. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion in the day of Christ Jesus, your Lord. He is the one who will bring about the completion. It is Christ who will do it. He is the faithful one, always has been, always will be, despite whatever comes our way. You've been sinned against, he's faithful. Physical hardship, even up to a famine and potential starvation of your your family, he is the faithful one. Sickness, disease, faithful, faithful. As Dave reminded us last week from Philippians 4, we have learned to be content in all things. Why? Because God is faithful. He is at work to do the sanctification that we need. Are you confident in God and his ability to hold you fast? Are you holding to your own ability? How do we live out knowing God is the anchor of faithfulness on which we can cling? It's his show. He's the one worthy to cling to. But is that a joy to you? Does it move you? Do you get it deep down in your bones what it means to be like this? We're broken vessels, we fail, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know we fail often, and sometimes we fail very hard. But how assuring is it to know we are not the object of our faith? Say that again, we are not the object of our faith. Sometimes our life can be in a place where we feel like the father in Mark 9 who cries out and he's like, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, there's but so little faith in me at this moment. I need you to take that small piece and do what you do best. Pour out more grace. Pour out more faith. Pour out more of your indwelling presence in my life. I can't do this. I got this much and I need this much right now. God, will you be faithful and do it? It's a culture in the world of hardship, of life pressing in, grasping. And God says, I will complete this. I have spoken my promises. They're in my word. I, the one who hold all things together, has got this. I have you. 
You are mine and there is no other like me. Are you confident in God and his ability to hold you fast? Or are you holding to your own ability? One is faith in your strength. The other is a recognition that he supplies even the very faith that we need to believe and hold on to him in the first place. I ask you, I plead with you, both fellow redeemed Christian and those who maybe right now aren't even sure what we're talking about, but you feel this deep down pull on your heart to cling to this hope that we have. We need to be a people and be someone who look to God and sees a perfectly loving God who has said he has a faithful, sure, and confident solution to our deepest sin problems. Live trusting in the grace of God to wash away those sins. Those are promises that he has given us. Deeply assured and completely walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus today, either for the first time or leaving reminded of the truth again and refreshed by the gospel. As we desperately need this today, we are in need of a faithful God to continue to be faithful just as he always has been. Are we aware of our shortcomings to not rightly fear the Lord, but instead fear circumstances? Are we in need of a reminder that he is the one who will fulfill all of his promises in Christ Jesus? Then take hope, brothers and sisters. We have a supreme confidence in the one who is able to hold all things together. He is the faithful fulfiller of all of his promises.